Welcome to my podcast, and isn't it wonderful news to welcome the second Downton Abbey film? I think it's going to cheer us up hugely, and it's due to be released just before Christmas, so the ideal Christmas present. Now, today I'm sitting here with a wonderful friend, Sir Peter Michael, who both is a neighbour, he actually in fact owns a couple of hotels which are much used by both the cast and the crew and so many visitors who come and visit Highclere Castle, as well as owning renowned vineyards in America, involved with Classic FM and so many engineering companies. I don't know where to start. <laughs> Perhaps it's with the vineyards. Well, <laughs> well, why don't we start with... The Vineyard in California. Yes. Now, this was a, a project which happened by accident, really. I, I'd been a, an engineer in Silicon Valley and had wandered up and down Silicon Valley during the highs and the lows back in the 70s when I first went to America. If you think back to the 70s, as I can, the time in England was pretty grim. It was raining, of course, most of the time for a start, but beyond that, we had the three-day week. Yes. And we had a stag, thing called stagflation. And trying to do anything new in the UK was pretty difficult, including having to listen to this aeroplane going by. I think all the aeroplanes are coming by to see if they can get a shot of Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah, so probably. And funny enough, my father yeah. was a company doctor, so he was trying to turn companies around and save them at this period. I just remember the exhaustion. I mean, it was a really, really challenging time. So what a sensible decision to, to be in America to see what sunny climbs could offer. Well, my father had gone to France. He had given up when taxation went up to 98% yes. and said, you know, what am I doing this for? I spend all my time in board meetings talking with the directors about how to reduce tax, not how to make the business grow. So he'd gone to France. I'd started a little electronics business, having worked for three of the big companies in the UK at that time, and decided I needed a shot. So I bought myself a ticket to San Francisco. When I got there, as I got off the plane in my suit and carrying a briefcase, a pretty little girl wearing a grass skirt came up to me and put a garland of flowers round my neck. And I thought, hello, this is different. That was my introduction to California. Now, California's got a lot of things about it which aren't that great, but boy, if you just take the things that are good, it is a most amazing state. They call it the Golden State, and it is just that. And it's been kind to me. I went there as an engineer and uh, looked around and started a business in electronics on image processing on what is well known as Route 101, which goes from San Francisco south and north and is the main thoroughfare through, through Silicon Valley. I spent some years doing that. We skip a few years forward and uh, I'd been in love with a singer, a woman called Peggy Lee. She had seen me through my university degree. I sat there studying physics and listening to a woman and things like that. I'd never seen her. I'd never met her. But she had an engagement at a famous hotel on Nob Hill. I took four of the guys from the engineering department and we went and had dinner there. It was a cabaret evening. We sat there and I ordered a bottle of wine from the French part of the menu, a burgundy. And when it came up, it 
was terrible. It had obviously been very badly stored, probably cooked. And I said to the sommelier, it's not good. And he tried it and said, I agree with you. I said to him, well, what can you find me, much as you would? What do you locals drink? And he said, oh, I think I can find you something, sir. And he came up with a bottle of Chateau Montalena, 1970. That went on to win the Judgment of Paris in 1976. Wow. So That yeah, was your starting point, that's when starting you point. then yeah. wanted to get involved and buy a vineyard and make your own wine. Yes, effectively. So, and then you chose a very unprepossessing part of the mountain of the hill, didn't you? Yes, well, it, uh, you need rugged territory. The, fun, the one thing you really need is drainage. The roots of vines must go down into the soil a long way. The further they go, the more strata they pass through and the more oh, interesting flavours become. As... The water is probably at about six or seven hundred feet. Uh, they have a long way to go. The roots of vines go down for thirty or forty feet if they're Goodness really me. looking. Yeah. So you mustn't have water standing if you want to produce interesting flavoured wines. So that was your starting point, and you were deeply involved in this because your father was interested in wines and vineyards. Did you inherit yeah. it? Do you think, or did it just become a completely pa- a passion for you when you were? out there living living in California. No, I bought the idea of California. I, I thought this was a land of milk and honey. It was very kind to me. And I decided I would buy some property in California mm. for my family. Mm. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But having had this experience at, uh, at Nob Hill, I decided the property I wanted would have to have a vineyard on it. It would have to be big. It would have to be within reach of San Francisco. Yes. And it, above all, it must have water. I found a property after about five or six years of looking that had a river running through it. And that became the, the heartbeat the, of what you then exactly. going on to create. Uh, to find it, I'd really fo- followed the steps of Robert Louis Stevenson, who had travelled in those parts and married a, an American girl and lived in this part of Northern California. And I just followed Silverado squatters and eventually landed up where he landed up and spent the winter on Mount St. Helena, where, which is the mountain that is now the winery, the Peter Michael Winery. How fantastic, because I know a little bit about the background, but then I know it because it's then come over here and it's become the hotel, which is 10 minutes from us, called the Vineyard, appropriately, funnily enough. And, and then you've got the most extraordinary wine list. So did the Vineyard Hotel presumably came another 20 years later, did it? It, it did, more yeah. or less. My son went to Lausanne the hotel school in Lausanne for three or four years, and thought that he wanted to be a hotelier. So Maggie and I, my wife, thought we'd better learn a little bit about hotels and bought what could be a hotel. It was a golf course, actually, a nine-hole golf course at the time, and set about trying to plan, build, operate a small hotel. <laughs> that's On top a, of everything else that you that, do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a, it was quite a task we took on. And subsequently, uh, he, having worked overseas for the big hotel groups, came back and said, I'm not sure I really want to do this. I'm working when all my friends are out enjoying themselves. I'm going to go into the computer animation business. <laughs> and le- left Maggie and me with a, a hotel, which we have, and it's great fun. 
Yes, no, but it's lovely. It's, it's, it's lovely because they are both quite near, and I thoroughly enjoy swimming at Donington actually every so often, which has been well, I haven't been able to swim there recently, but it's so good for the health as well. You've got to spar and everything else there. So those were the two hotels. But I know that to backtrack, your your background as an engineer has led you in many different places. I mean, one of them, I mean, I always thought of Classic FM, which I am a huge fan of, a classical radio station, which is throughout this country for those who are listening from America, which I always so enjoy. I find it incredibly reassuring. And then equally, when it goes a wee bit off track to make me listen to something different, it's got some great presenters. And I mean, I know you're you're not involved with it now, but this was a a real challenge to the BBC Radio 3 and the other stations at the time. It must have been. It, 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 certainly, it certainly was, I think. A vast number of people, from politicians down to businessmen and businessmen down to footballers and footballers down to those who drive around in cars doing things like being vets or doctors, all have at least two buttons on their car radio. One of them is Classic FM and the other is Radio 4. Yes, uh, I don't think when Maggie Thatcher walked into the BBC and said, you know those two channels, you've got Radio 6 and 7, you haven't got them anymore. One of them is going to be classical music and one of them is going to be talk radio. And that was the beginning. Wow. But the resistance that was put up (laughs) in order to try to stop it happening has behind it a lot of stories which are probably best not told. (laughs) No, I'm sure. Well, funnily enough, um, one of my great friends owns and manages Viking Cruises, who are great supporters of Classic FM, both the concerts, and uh, they just happened to be recording a new advert for Classic FM, which she was telling me before I came up today. But uh, those are the two buttons which I listened to. It was an extraordinary story. And my husband would actually say that he feels one of your greatest legacies is Greenham Common and the trust and the service to the community which you created with that, Peter. It has been such an extraordinary, well, gift to the local community because of your hard work and your vision. Well, I hope it's not a legacy just yet. I hadn't got it planned in mind to, although I'm getting... No, 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 it's a legacy (laughs) that you created so many years ago, I meant. But it was, I mean, I don't know how you came up with that idea. It it does seem to have worked out well, and uh, one can never tell when you do these things. The history of Greenham Common is a story in itself, and you will remember the peace women who changed themselves to the railings. Yes. It became a European issue. The women did a wonderful job, I think, really, in getting it under control and preventing the continuation of the ICBMs, which were stored there, very worryingly, really. And when they disappeared, of course, there still were a group who wanted to memorialise the Commons history and set up a peace camp, which is now indeed signified by the Peace Garden, which is inside the entrance. But what we felt was, unless Greenham Common was to develop from the saw that it was of uh, 800 acres just in this largely rural and wonderful area we have here, it was forever going to be a blot on the landscape. Of course, what would have happened is that maybe the the large housing contractors would have bought the good bits and built um, track-built houses. The uh, industrialists would have bought some of the 
space for storage barns and um, distribution centres, and then there would have been the rubbish bit, which we would have been left with. I looked at that and thought, we don't really want that to happen. So we put together about 50 people one day and had a meeting, and I put up a proposal that we created this foundation, which everyone nodded to. The council looked at it and said, well, these people seem to be doing a good thing, we'll help them. And so we managed to acquire Greenham Common as a charity, and off we went. We gave 800 acres back to the community. They paid for it, though. They gave me a pound note for it. (laughs) And we left them with, I think, a million pounds to change it, to refurbish it yes. back into... Back Common into, land again, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is now grazed. It's wonderful, wilded land. By now, we have managed to turn it into a business. So the remaining acres you kept, you turned into a business park, yeah. didn't you? Well, uh, there was acres of hard standing. Yes. And there were acres of building, most of which were in a terrible state and had to come down. But some of them have been maintained, some of them have been refurbished, and new ones have been built. And as we let those out, they produce a revenue. That revenue goes to a foundation, and the foundation distributes it to charities in this region, which covers uh, Berkshire, bits of Wiltshire, and bits of Hampshire. We've helped, through that, thousands of charity operations that have been short of money, needed extra investment. We've rebuilt things like sports halls, which had fallen into disrepair, and so on. And I think it amounts to probably between 50 and £100 million now that we've managed to raise. Because I think my husband sat on that with you at the very beginning, didn't he? So uh... He did. He did. And in fact, it yeah. drew together some of the people in this part of the world who were not normally sit together in the same room because they were in competition with each other, many of them. But they, some of the best businessmen joined pro bono and put together a board. Now, the, the one thing, if I've done anything in life, I do, is to find people who can do the job better than I can and let them get on with it and do it. And if it works well, then I take the bouquets. <laughs> But it has, it's been, anyway, it's been the most extraordinary, and I think that's in the sense that I was using legacy, creation perhaps, which I hope will go on for many, many years, as I'm sure you will. Just before we began the podcast, you were telling me about your work with Imperial College, which I found fascinating, and to do with your work with COVID and the latest pandemic. A year ago, uh, I listened to a lecture by some academic researchers at Imperial College about a new way they had found of using uh, microelectronic detection to find parts of RNA and DNA in a very complicated way, using mathematics and signal extraction and all of those techniques, and integrating together uh, microelectronics with microfluidics. And uh, I thought it was so beautifully done that I put my hand up and said, I wonder if we might turn this into a commercial product. After a little consideration, that is what we did. So a group of us put together some skills and worked with the academic team. We are now approaching the point some nine months later 
where we have a product which is likely to appear before the end of the year for detecting COVID. And it's a portable product. Now, I think by now everyone knows that lateral flow tests are usually highly inaccurate. They produce false negatives and, even more important, false positives. Now, imagine that you are managing a team of people, of a thousand people, and they produce 900 negatives, but 100 positives. Some of those will be genuine positives, but some of them will be false positives. And what you need to do is to find out which they are. Because if you have to isolate someone for 10 days whilst they recover, you've lost those hours and that workforce and the amount of money involved across the country is huge. The simple, cheap lateral flow test, which is a piece of paper which has a stripe on it and produces an answer in half an hour or so, the inaccuracy gives serious financial problems and you need to have a confirmation an accurate confirmatory test with PCR or something equivalent to it. That takes a day or two or three. During that time, you are supposed to be isolated. When the test comes back and says, actually, it was negative, you can go back to work. But if it was, in fact, positive, you've got this long period. So what you need to do, that three-day period is critical because in the meantime, what do you do? Are you going to put them into work? or wait for them to have the results of the test back. You need a test which is now. So what the Imperial team have done is to develop a now test, which takes half an hour, that can be done on the spot. So if if your lateral flow test is positive, you're not quite sure whether it's really positive or not, but you can then test it with an equivalent of a PCR test. It's called a a lamp test, which is the same thing, and have the real answer within half an hour. This is a major financial saving to those who have to employ large numbers of people. I imagine it would be incredibly useful if it were deployed at an airport, because either you are negative or positive when you get on a plane, and negative or positive when you land, because it seems to me such a huge waste of time to isolate when you are fine. And George and I had gone to Italy last autumn and when we came back, we were caught and we had to isolate, which we did. So we came back, we did a PCR test, which was negative. We then waited another four days, did another one, which was negative. But at the time, we still had to isolate for a further, whatever it was, two weeks. You know, so the end of the two weeks. So that, it has a... I mean, for us, we are lucky in that we can do things from home without seeing anybody and people kind of drop food around but what a what a waste of time you know there was definitely the whole of the business was going backwards like this and I I find some of the guidelines and the planning and the process not crisp enough and here for me running iClip Peter I need accurate information now every single morning what do I look at how many people are coming, how many therefore staff I need, how I can plan, how I can market to push up the numbers or not, what I don't need to focus on. And that's what I'm looking at every morning. It is up to date and it's real. How can you work without information? So what you're offering is fascinating. And I think it's a lot of what COVID has done 
has brought up into our faces this this requirement to take an engineering approach, which is called planning, setting out the process, analysing it, checking your facts and moving on. But of course it goes much further than that. And as we've looked at it, we can see that this vast network which has been constructed by a test and trace and a huge cost has with it a potential of changing practice in medicine diagnosis. I think within the course of the next year, probably, there will be a major improvement in the way in which diagnostics will work so that when someone walks into a hospital with a a cough or a sneeze or a temperature and they could have one of half a dozen different diseases within 30 minutes we'll be able to find out what it is. So your machine can identify not just COVID, but a whole range of different um, yes. diseases. Yes, the work has already been done in, uh, in Ebola, for example, in malaria, right. in Africa, before we even started on, on this. And that's what uh, the research team had been, been doing, hoping to provide solutions in the develop, developing part of the world. But of course, once the pandemic pandemic came, it became obvious that the thing that we had to do quickly was to adapt it to detect COVID. And uh, that's what we're doing. And identify what's in front of you. So a lot of the um, in the news at the moment, a lot of it is about different strains of COVID. It does it, it presumably it has the sensitivity as well to to work out which strain it is or not. Yeah, yes, the principle, uh, the broad principle is is what is called a platform technology, and on that platform you can mount various different disease modules, which will cover anything which has got a DNA or an RNA structure to it. Will tell you what the answer is, and it can be done within a few weeks. How extraordinary, Peter. How exciting. How exciting. And can you then ma- manufacture these in this country? Uh, yes. yes. Well, it, manufacturing is already beginning in this, in country. this country. It's great to see the way in which the UK really has, under the covers, got some terrific technology, which is now surfacing as it's being given a bit of light and uh, the availability of a little bit of money as well, which previously... Europe in general, and the UK in particular, has been agnostic to the idea of technology. The city is much preferred, commerce and bricks and mortar and uh, things they understand, whereas the USA has welcomed technology advances with with open arms. And reading now, one sees that the scales are falling off some of the eyes of, of the investors and institutions, and it's, they're going to have to pay their dues because it's not all going to go right. Uh, but eventually, uh, I have always been a believer that the answer to most of mankind's problems can be helped by technology and science. How interesting. Well, perhaps this is moving on from the era of consumerism to that of technology and science. And I have to say, just before, again, we started, I was saying that Part of my my life is also the gardening, the cooking, the nature and the ancient woodland. And I wished that the HS2 project 
were halted because it's not appropriate and it's not the right project for this time and the money invested into technology and engineering and the ancient woodlands left as they were. I think the world has moved on in the last year by some five to ten years and our vision should be much further out, Peter, not just doing what we did five years ago, but there's a vision somewhere out there on the sea and that's where we should be looking not where we walked from. On the current schedule, HS2 will come into operation as probably the last of the superspeed trains in Japan are pensioned off. And the very high-speed trains uh, will be running at 400 miles per hour in Japan. And we will still be on these tracks instead of using the technology which is now well-proven to use things like magnetic levitation and, and so on. So I, I was slightly involved in this. I have to say, we did a focus trial, of which there are many, to see whether or not HTS2 would be a useful investment. And if you talk to the people in that part of the world, in Birmingham to Liverpool to Leeds to Manchester, they generally don't didn't want it. What they wanted was east-west communications. Yes. And so we put together a plan which hit the buffers, I'm afraid, when uh, things like pandemics and financial crashes came along, uh, to put together a thing called Hyperloop, which is an, a technology which uh, Elon Musk first coined the term for, which is really a very high-speed, straight-line underground system. 10 minutes from Liverpool to Manchester, 10 minutes, 100 minutes to get across from Liverpool to Hull, which is about 140 miles. At the moment, it takes a day if you, if you have a truck or so, and can take three days. Transport is in a very bad state. We did talk to British Rail about this and Northern Rail. They rejected it, of course, I think mostly because many of them were probably approaching retirement age and didn't want anything to happen which would interfere with that, coming up with a, a bum idea. It would have been great, but I'm afraid it's not going to happen. That's all I should say about that, really. Yes, no, definitely. But I think the happier news is the other work you're doing, pulling together the yeah. fusing of electronics and fluidity, which sounds as if that is something which will add hugely to our lives in the next couple of years. Because pandemics don't just disappear, they take some time to go. Yeah, there is yeah. a bit of a tale to go, isn't there? So I think we should open at some point a bottle of champagne together, one of yours, and then later on when we produce one from our vineyard. Well, absolutely. We've planted this vineyard, Peter. It is exciting, and Geordie and I have learnt so much about it. It's in the old walled garden, which was Capability Brown designed in 1771. That's when it was built. We've got the sign above the wall, and it's on the right south-facing slope, and we tested the soil and the temperature for some time with the help of Joseph Perrier, the champagne house with whom we already work and import their champagne. So it actually took a few really rather wonderful champagne lunches to make sure it was all right. <laughs> but it is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So my husband as a farmer worries about the weather much of the time and now there's another layer. <laughs> He's worry. worrying about the yeah. weather and the frosts and... You know, he's he's gone down to see the vineyard today to see what's gone right or well, wrong. Well, yeah, the, the British sparkling wines are 
really good and they make good prices in the markets and that is because of the quality. Of course, uh, we all know about um, Hampton Court 500 years ago with its vineyards there and there's a theory which may or may not be true that around about that time, around about the 1500s, the temperature suddenly dropped by about one degree centigrade on average across the southern UK. Of course, they didn't have thermometers which could measure it accurately, uh, so we don't really know, but there is this theory. And it was at that point that the Hampton Court vineyard no longer could produce quality fruit. Now, with global warming, I mean, this is an issue. It's an issue for everyone in this in the wonderful wine business. The one, wine is a great business to be in because you meet so many really nice people mm. and they don't have the pressure on them. They're, they're, their cycle is a few years. Well, you know, we didn't have a great year last year, but we're hoping this, this crush is going to be better and so on. The question of global warming and vineyards is a really serious one in many, many parts of the world. In California, we've had, for the last five years, we've had a fire, which has come by, sometimes doing no damage at all and occasionally doing quite a lot of damage. And people have lost, lost everything, all of their production, all the vineyards and all of their buildings. Australia in particular, South Africa, there's huge fire risk now. And if it gets drier this this year, the rainfall in Northern California is just 25% of average. Everything is tinder dry and we're only into April. We've got the whole of the summer yet to come. So looking forward with optimism that we might have a give us a break, for goodness sake, uh, <laughs> is probably an unrealistic thing to do. Dryness and grapes sort of go together like hand and glove you can't grow them really easily if there's a lot of rainfall around at least you can't really grow the Grand Cru grapes I don't know it'll be so interesting as we take the vineyard forward over the next few years actually but it's the same soil the same chalk topography which comes from the Champagne of area of France and dips under the Chandel and, and appears in this sort of area. And so which grapes are you going to have planted? We have planted three years ago Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Right, perfect. So it's, um, and we've now got just two of these heating blows that she was discussing. I think you've got many, many more of them. But we've even got a few candles which arrived, but they were delivered to the gift shop. Everyone thought they were diffusers to sell in the gift shop. So there was such hilarity. We all went back to the two Ronnie skittered full candles, and um, whether it's the gardeners or Sally, but there's a lot of laughter here as well. Anyway, they were actually candles to aid the vines during frosts in the vineyard so having been pushed into sally's gift shop it was a huge huge pallet they then had to be reversed out and sent down the hill for a mile with two chaps pushing but anyway it's all a little bit mad here the way you have to be i think to do what you are doing and possibly my wife thinks i'm mad too you have to be prepared to do things which are unconventional but this is such a wonderful area i moved into this part of the world in 19 about 1980 was it yeah around about 1980 i think 
perhaps 19, no, it's 1970s. And I've loved it, and our, we've had our children here and now our grandchildren, and it has been very, very kind to us all. Well, so have you been, because when I had first married Geordie, I remember you and Maggie asked me to your house, I think it was for a Christmas drinks, and you had the wonderful garland going down the stairs, which I remember very clearly and much admired, and... And loved looking around at your wonderful art. So it's been a joy getting to know you and your family and your and Paul and your daughter-in-law. And it's, it's been such a joy, Peter. And thank you for coming to chat to me today. I could chat to you for hours, but thank you. Well, um, and you've been very kind to invite us to dinner on numerous occasions. Probably what you don't know is that whenever I come, I bring a bottle of Peter Michael wine with oh, me. Oh, I do know. And try to secrete it somewhere perhaps behind an ornament on the mantelpiece, so that when the camera scans around... (laughs) (laughs) But your wine's been served in the White House. It's been served, you know, in the royal residences, I know. And and actually, the main thing that happens when you bring it is I try and remove it to my study before it gets nicked by my husband or Louis the butler so that I can be in charge of when I'm going to savour it and open it. And then I write my name because my sisters call me Foey, so I write, I'm afraid, Foey over your labels. So nobody can open it without me being there. I'll, I'll label it for you next time. <laughs> thank you. Oh, Peter, thank you so much for coming today. Many it's thanks. Been a, been a pleasure. <laughs> Hello, this is Lady Carnarvon, and just to say, please do subscribe to this podcast. Then you can be first on the list every time it comes out.